The Seattle Seahawks have been frisky this offseason, getting unusually active in the early days of free agency. Joining us to break down the action and what it means moving forward is the News Tribune's brilliant Seahawks reporter, Greg Bell. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my distraught producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? We're processing, Jackson. It's been a surprisingly (laughs) active couple of weeks for the Seahawks, what with free agency opening up and everything that stemmed from that. But uh, yeah, processing over here. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good, man. I'm I'm unusually hyped for this time of year. Honestly, this is normally kind of a sit back and let everybody else do stuff time of the year. And uh, not so, you know, it's been an exciting time in Seahawks land since you and I got together. Pete Carroll, John Schneider, they've historically waited out the first wave of free agency, but they jumped right into the fray. Signing splashy defensive lineman Draymond Jones from the Denver Broncos to a three-year contract, and have since added potential difference makers Devin Bush from Pittsburgh and Julian Love from the Giants. But Mike, this has not been purely a time for joy, has it? Oh. Would you like to take a moment and say goodbye to a special someone before we get going? You know, Jackson, I would. Travis Homer, <laughs> we hardly knew you. Four years ago, you were selected by the Seahawks on day three of the draft. The surest rite of passage for all pros that don the action green. You entered the VMAC a man and exited a man who was above average in pass protection. A stunning feat. <laughs> the haters will say that Chris Carson shouldn't have ever left the field in two-minute drill. They don't get it, Travis. They didn't see you drive a linebacker into the earth's mantle with a simple brush of your shoulder. Nor did they witness you suplex Ed Oliver without breaking a sweat. Or effortlessly convert fake punts and onside kicks into pay dirt. Don't you worry, Travis. I did. So best of luck in Chi-Town to the undisputed engine of Seattle's offense, the Blitzbreaker himself, our unassailable God King who flipped the script and finally made running backs matter again. Godspeed, Travis. Godspeed. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Travis Homer. For some reason, only your particular worm brain could explain. Somehow became the de facto mascot for this podcast, and we wish him nothing but the ultimate success as the future NFL rushing leader in Chicago. Yeah, that's right. But That's right. I don't know how I'm going to live without seeing him get two yards on second and four. I know. It's a trying time for us all, Jackson. (laughs) There is much more to get to today, and we have the distinct honor of getting to it with one of our favorite people covering the team. He lends wonderfully straightforward opinions and analysis to the team beat for the News Tribune, is one of the best Seahawks follows on Twitter, and can now polish off his sterling resume as a guest in the Cigar Lounge. He is Greg Bell. Greg, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jackson. My my career is now complete. I've been waiting to get on this for a long time. You know, I spent, this is is a true story, I spent 15 minutes on a Bears podcast yesterday talking about Travis Homer, which is is about 14 minutes more than I had to say. It was, yeah, we ended up talking a lot about special teams <laughs> and third down expertise and the glue uh, that yeah. binds franchises together. <laughs> right, right. She, she was the host was trying to make the point that perhaps with Montgomery gone in Chicago as the lead back, Travis Homer could take that role. And I said, well, that would be something he's yet to do in the NFL. 
even do anything. On Low mileage, track. baby. Low mileage. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't have much wear <laughs> on those tires. That's true. No, glad glad to be here. This is this is an honor. No, I I do follow your work. All kidding aside, follow your work. You guys are great. Uh, love the vibe and love what you guys do. Thank you, Greg. That means a lot. Now, I want to dive right into Seattle's free agency because this has been the most notable one I can remember, at least since the first two years when they were setting league records for roster churn. But since those frenzied first two seasons, this team has preferred to build through the draft, high-profile trades, and low-profile free agency signings. But not so this year, huh? It's way different. And some of it is by circumstance of their salary cap situation. You guys remember they were paying Russell Wilson top of the market. They were paying, had to repay the Legion of Boom and Bobby Wagner and Doug Baldwin. And all those big contracts meant when it was March and free agency time to add, they had to go basement bargain shopping. And that mm-hmm. usually is second, third week free agents, one-year deals. I think all the 30-year-old defensive tackles they've signed a low-risk, short-term contract. And then this year, it's flipped. They When they re-signed, what precipitated all this to me was Geno Smith's new contract. When Smith decided to go with the incentive-laden $30-plus million in bonuses and incentive money, and $25 million a year base contract. Really, that contract's three years and $75 million. When he agreed to that, that gave them, the, the Seahawks, the flexibility to go get Dremont Jones. $17 million a year on the first day of free agency is really unheard of for a Carol Schneider Seahawks offseason. But it's because their Pro Bowl quarterback really didn't put him over a barrel and say that they couldn't do anything else in free agency. He realizes, yeah. Smith does, that... They're not, the Seahawks aren't going anywhere further than they went last year unless their defense gets better. And he, Smith, is not going to go to any Super Bowls and start more than one playoff game unless they get so much better on defense physically in the front seven to even compete with San Francisco. And, you know, moves like Dremont Jones and Jaron Reed are a, a nod toward that. But, again, I credit Geno Smith. Not that he was just – He's not just passing a hat here. Twenty-five million a year is nothing to sneeze at. But right. he could have he could have dragged that out into something more that would have hamstrung them into doing what they ended up being able to do this month. Yeah, it, it's important to recognize that as the main domino for all of this because, to your point, Seattle had some flexibility with the rest of their roster from a cap standpoint going into that negotiation, and Smith had the leverage to take some of that and keep it for himself. And, and you saw it, it really felt mutual in that press conference after he signed talking about not only the loyalty factor, which, you know, you, you hear that a lot from guys who resign with their team, whether or not it was a major factor or not, you know, typically comes down to the dollars, but you really got the sense that was a big part of this. You know, Geno Smith is someone who's been betting on himself with one year contracts for a decade. And this is the team that gave him the opportunity traded away, you know, arguably the most famous player in franchise history uh, to give him a shot to win that job. And and he took it, he ran with it, and really talked about wanting the team to be able to build something around him. And it was just such a refreshing change of pace from a lot of the high-profile contract negotiations that Seattle's had over the last six, seven years. I'm not just talking about Russell Wilson. I mean, we had holdouts with Cam Chancellor. We had, obviously, all the drama surrounding Earl Thomas and whether he was going to get that third contract. Bobby Wagner, top of the market. You know, Richard Sherman, top of the market. And and a dramatic exit there. It just, it feels like the vibes are so much, I don't know if friendlier is the right word, but just 
copacetic between what the players want and what the team is trying to accomplish. Yeah, they had Dwayne Brown hold in and yep. Jamal Adams hold in even just the last couple of years. You know, Jackson, if Geno Smith, he could have done nothing. He could have said no to every single thing the Seahawks were offering and made $32 million on a franchise tag, which is what it would have forced Seattle to do because they weren't ready to have a, quarter, a rookie quarterback start for them, and they weren't ready for Drew Locke to take you know, Smith's job. And so that, to me, what was what the interesting angle of that was. that You could think in a cold dollars and cents that Smith should not have taken less than 32 or $30 million, say, because that was the franchise tag to him. Mm-hmm. But again, he realized that taking that money, that much money would have precluded them from being able to build much on their defense or at least having to cut more players before they could sign anyone for their defense. It, it was a more holistic view of roster building that usually quarterbacks don't get into, especially his predecessor, uh, <laughs> asking for top of the market in both of the contract extensions he got. But it also speaks to where Geno Smith is in his career. When he only made a, t- a combined $8 million through his first 10 years of his career, $25 million sounds pretty good. Yeah, I imagine <laughs> it does. In, in one year, he's, three, he's 300% on his salary. That's a pretty nice bump. And so his relative, where he had come from in his career versus, say, a Russell Wilson was completely different. And so therefore, he was operating on a completely different perspective of what would he would take and what he's good with. Uh, from a player's perspective, he figures he's a young 32. He's barely played in the last eight years. And he'll be a free agent again when he's 35 and relatively young 35. And if he's as good as he thinks he is, then he goes and gets another contract. For the Seahawks, the hedge is they could get out of that deal with base, after one year basically paying $17 or $14 million. And they would take a cap hit, yes. But they could get – if Smith does not maintain a Pro Bowl level of play – they could, if, depending how the draft goes, draft a quarterback in the first round and have that guy on layaway for this year to develop. And then if the Smith doesn't equal his performance, go with the next guy. They, it does give Seattle flexibility. It does give the rest of the league pause that, hey, maybe the Seahawks might take a quarterback, which is, I think, another corollary to what they've been doing all month is to try to get the entire league to think they're going to take a quarterback. <laughs> the selfie tour has been really fun to watch. Oh, that's good. That, you, speak, you talk about different guys. They never advertise that stuff. Right. Usually Snyder sneaks in the back door of, the, of like the cafeteria of one of these colleges to go to pro days and then sneaks back out again. They are like advertising that they are at all these pro days. Will Levis is today at Kentucky. They were at Stroud's at Ohio State taking selfies like they were relatives. And then at Alabama, they were doing the same thing with Bryce. You think they're in the family pictures the way those guys were I know advertising. It. I know it. Yeah, it's been it's been so over the top that I do think it's partly to get the league think they're going to draft. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, you know, I'm a big believer in in leverage and leverage matters. You know, it's not just understanding the cards in your hand or the chips in front of you. It's knowing how to play them. And they are definitely playing them right now, which is really fun. And, you know, I'm glad we started at the top with quarterback because we're going to go through the various position groups on this team. Get your thoughts on the additions and subtractions from a more granular level. But zooming out to start. Which move or moves have been the most surprising to you so far? Well, Draymond Jones, uh, that's a top 10 free agent. At age 26, five and a half, six and a half sack guy who can play inside and outside, defensive tackle, defensive end. That's a signing the Seahawks don't normally do. Again, they usually on the defensive line have, have gone bargain shopping and shorter term deals. 
that's a big boy deal in free agency, especially in Seattle's terms. Uh, that surprised me. Uh, I would have thought that they would have gone more conservatively. I would have thought Jones would have gone somewhere else. And I didn't even hear any smoke about Jones to Seattle. No, and that was a little bit of Seattle's, the way they operate as well. They didn't want to get into a bidding war with other teams and letting them know. And Jones himself said Seattle kind of came out of left field at the last minute before he was talking to other, he had been talking to other teams. And then Seattle's offer at the last minute before he signed beat all the other offers. So he took it. And that's it surprised me. You know, I, I wasn't super familiar with Jones and his game prior to this year, but so much was made about Seattle's opening day win against the Broncos, everything it meant, everything it meant about Russ and Gino and Pete and on and on. Draymond Jones kind of kicked our ass in that game. He had three major splash plays. One was a sack and a couple were uh, stops in short yard situations. They couldn't block him. And I remember thinking, kind of, who is this guy? And then when they signed him, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember. I remember that guy like made a difference in that game. So that was that was a very, very cool one uh, to see. I agree. That was probably the most surprising for me. There's one other one that I didn't really see coming, and we'll get there. I want to start with the skill positions. Not a lot of activity there in the backfield. Obviously, they re-signed Geno Smith, but they also did re-sign Drew Locke to a one-year deal. One that I think is pretty similar to the deal that Geno signed last year. Uh, Mike, what was it, about $4 million on that? Yeah, it was $4 million. Yeah. And then in addition to that with the running backs, uh, they did add Tony Jones Jr. back to the active roster. But they lost Rashad Penny and Travis Homer. Penny going to the Eagles and Homer, as we said, going to the Bears. Do you... I personally was surprised when I saw the money that Rashad Penny got. And I think that's a great situation for him to be in, you know, best rushing team in the NFL last year. But when I saw one year, I think $2.1 million, 600,000 base, I was surprised Seattle didn't match that. I think they were surprised that he had suitors that would offer more than $2 million. Uh, He was likely destined to come back to Seattle just above veteran minimum about $1.1, $1.2 million with a big extent incentives and per game bonuses and rushing yard bonuses. I'm sh- I won't say sure, but I'm, I'm thinking the Seahawks thought that would be enough and that they had in the back pocket that they could bring back Rashad Penny late spring, maybe even early summer for something just above minimum. So it surprised them, but it speaks to how much the Eagles, even though they were a Super Bowl team, need running backs. And they're, they're betting on the upside. And they obviously saw enough in the health and, and recovery of Rashad Penny to pay him that. It did, that money did surprise me as well because I thought he'd just above minimum and the Seahawks would be almost negotiating against themselves late spring for what shouldn't have been a huge market for that. I, they're going to draft a running back, I think, later in later rounds. But they never have enough running backs, as you guys yep. know. This is a team at 18 ball carrier a couple years ago. and. They seem to go through running back seven, six, eight. Heck, Marshawn Lynch may get a call in November the case of the (laughs) Seahawks running backs are. But Kenneth Walker, can he be a full-time, full-season running back? And he didn't take the job until early October last year. And not to say that they are doubts about his health, but he was banged up in December into January. And that affected Geno Smith in the entire offense when he, Kenneth Walker, wasn't full health. And, and I thought that was a big factor in Geno Smith's production going down in December was the lack of a consistent running game because Ken Walker was injured. 
So yeah, they're going to add to running back. And they yeah, they're they're going to need to. And you know, we joked about Travis Homer leading the league in rushing in Chicago. It is in Rashad Penny's range of outcome that he could lead the league in rushing in Philadelphia behind that line when you have to account for Jalen Hurts. And the fact that when Rashad Penny has been healthy, he has been the best rusher of the football in the NFL. Just statistically speaking, I, I was just going back when, when he signed, I was going back and looking through like his per game averages. And I went to pro football reference and, and pulled up his career per game versus Nick Chubb's career per game. Chubb, for me being the standard of a true ball carrier in the NFL. And uh, yeah, man, <laughs> there's not a lot of difference there. In fact, if Rashad Penny keeps this pace and reaches the threshold, he will be the NFL's all-time leader in yards per carry at 5.7, <laughs> which is insane. I know YPC is not everything for a running back, but it's not nothing either. So I, and, and he's an easy guy to root for. So he is. Uh, hope, hopefully, you know, unless Seattle's playing them in the playoffs or something, I, I hope he has all the success over there. He credits Adrian Peterson Jackson for changing his career. He really? said that he said that before Peterson signed a couple seasons late a couple seasons ago with Seattle, he was Penny was tentative with his reconstructed knee, and he thought he was thinking preoccupied with defenses targeting it when they tackled him and they might twist it a little bit. Or, that they were very aware of the fact that his knee had been reconstructed, and, and Peterson, who of course famously had a reconstructed knee early in his career, and then came back to be an NFL MVP with it. 2000 yard season after it he told penny do the opposite attack those guys when you run so they can't even target the knee just be so far more decisive in running downhill so that you're not worried about them hitting the knee you hit them and penny says it changed his career changed his entire outlook on how to run the ball he became a more of a one-cut decisive runner because of peterson and the production since peterson signed it was off the charts compared yeah. to before Wow. It was almost like a flip of a switch. And then, of course, Peterson goes his own way, and then Penny gets hurt after four games last season. But the, the injury last season short-circuited what could have been a 1,000-yard year for Rashad Penny. Easily. And if he, had, and if he has a 1,000-yard year, he's still in Seattle. They would have re-signed him, and they would have a 1-2 tandem with him and, and Kenneth Walker, which was what they envisioned when they drafted Walker. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's such a fascinating story. It reminds me of one that I heard about Sean Alexander early in his career and he was having a little bit of trouble adjusting to the NFL game and someone, I think it was his running backs coach at the time, but, uh, Stop Mitchell. yeah, figured out that Sean Alexander was holding his breath going through the line and he was really tense and just like, <gasps> as he would run and he just told him to basically breathe through his runs and then, you know, MVP, <laughs> You know, 27 touchdown season. It's just, it's amazing. These little things at that level, you know, all these guys are dancing on the blade of a knife for their careers and whether or not they're going to be an all pro or out of the league and little things like that. It really is remarkable. Just a, just a slight physiological shift can make all the difference. And at that position, which you guys know is the most wrecked position in the NFL, the shortest lifespan of a career, just over three seasons for a running back. Uh, the, the good for Rashad Penny, because as you said, he's easily likable, wears his heart on his sleeve. He, he said he admitted that early in his career, he paid attention to too much social media criticism and took it to heart. But good for him to get a couple million dollars with a chance to make more on a short-term deal. If he is what he thinks he is and stays healthy, he can make a big, big, big amount of money at a position where the, you got to get the money now. I mean, look at Todd Gurley, the rest of the league, that contract still haunts 
GMs across the league and, and has got them hesitating giving multi-year deals to, to running backs. So uh, this is the way running backs have to live. And Rashad Penny's going to have to live the year to year and prove himself both healthy and productive in order to get the big money because at that position, man, it just goes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, uh, the trend in the league is not to give a big second second contract to these guys. You know, it it, it really is about gr- <laughs> grind them into dust on that rookie contract and let someone else pay them. You know, that's that's the way it's going. No one wants to be saddled with a twenty million dollar cap hit to get rid of Ezekiel Elliott. So, um, as good as as Zeke has been, you know, uh, as far as the receivers go, not a lot of action there either. Um, it sounds like. They are still undecided on Marquise Goodwin and Penny Hart in that they are not actively part of the team. They haven't signed with anyone else, though. Um, there's a chance, potentially, that either of those guys could come back. You heard anything on that front? No, they did like Goodwin. They just are concerned with his injuries. And it's his, he's such a speed. That's his game and speed, obviously, former track right. champion, that he has to be healthy in order to be someone on the team. And that's what they're trying to weigh. Penny Hart really fell out of favor, I thought, during training camp last year. I was surprised he made the team. He barely got on the field once Goodwin asserted himself and became more of a mentor teacher to not just receivers, but the defensive backs in CL's training camp. I was surprised Hart even lasted the season last year. I, I, I don't expect he will come back. I think a wide receiver is another place they'll draft. They've drafted so many of them in this regime. They need to find a third wide receiver. Uh, and they'd like him to be around a while. They thought D. Eskridge would be that. I'm not saying that they're giving up on D. Eskridge, but they're not exactly enthralled with him in the first two years and wouldn't right. not been able to stay on the field. But uh, it would not surprise me a second-day draft pick as a wide receiver. Yeah, wouldn't wouldn't surprise me either. And do you think that the fact they haven't brought anyone in, haven't re-signed Goodwin, speaks to Derek Young? Derek Young, yes. They they liked his versatility. They used him as fullback at the end of last season. I right. just noticed that. Uh, they're going to use him in a variety of roles, as an X, as a Z, as someone maybe even in a slot, someone on a wing, as kind of a pseudo tight end, depending on when Will Disley comes back from his injury. Uh, they're going to expand Derek Young's role. Shane Waldron talked about it at the end of the season how the more young learned, the more confident they got given him more. And I think after one year now, they, 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 Pete Carroll always talks about that quantum leap between years one and two. I think you're going to see Derek Young as a tight end slash wide receiver in this offense this year. That's really interesting. Yeah, and, and the tight end room seems to have stayed pretty stable. I, I don't anticipate uh, any major moves regarding Noah Fant, Colby Parkinson. We'll see what Will Disley is coming back from yet another injury. Poor guy. But one of the real points of focus for this team, and let's be honest, offensive line is kind of like offensive coordinator. There's like three teams that are happy right? or whose fans are happy with their yeah. offensive line, just like they are with their play calling, right? It's, it's such an easy thing to uh, criticize and say we're not good enough there. Having five good offensive linemen is so difficult because there aren't 150 good offensive linemen. I mean, Guys at that size with that kind of precocious athletic ability, if you're coming up and you're looking at, I've got the potential for a pro career, I mean, are you choosing to be on the offensive side or the defensive side, right? If you're 280, right. 300, 320, and you can move, the money's on the defensive side, and and that athleticism gap between these defensive linemen and offensive linemen continues to grow every year. So it is a, a point of focus for Seattle. That's no surprise. They've got their tackles figured out. But they did add Evan Brown, who played center and guard for the Lions. 
that was a very, very good offensive line last year. Uh, they also brought back Phil Haynes, but they let go of Gabe Jackson. Austin Blythe, I think, retired. Yes. And, uh, you know, what are you seeing with the offensive line in terms of who they decided to keep, who they decided to bring back, and who they haven't? Well, they they basically handing Phil Haynes the right guard spot, and they saved $6.5 million by cutting Gabe Jackson. And that's why they were alternating him and Haynes as the starters at right guard last year. The tackles have been a absolute find. To have two rookie tackles last year start bookends and have them under rookie contract for the next four years allows them to fix center. And they have been flat negligent at center. Mm-hmm. They, they have malpracticed at center. They, they just decided after trading Max Unger, they haven't been the same offensive line or center since trading Max Unger in 2015. Yep. And they have brought back Kyle Fuller. They brought back Ethan Posick. They moved Justin Britt there. It was the, the revolving door at center. It, it, enough's enough there. And Pete Carroll at the Combine told us we have to fix that position. And I read that to me. I took that to mean fixed through the draft mm-hmm. to have more than a one-year wonder or one-year plug-in, more than – Austin Blythe was. I, I'm not sure Brown from Detroit is not going to play guard and be a swing guard. Uh, I, I'm not convinced he's going to be the center. He was a guard more than the center the last two years with Detroit. And only when Ragna, Frank Ragnow, the veteran center, got hurt with the Lions did he play more center than guard. So he could compete with Haynes at one of the right guard spots. I think they're going to draft a center. I think that maybe the first round pick, the t- number twenty, could end up being the center. The mm-hmm. kid from Minnesota is the one that everybody loves as right. as the most accomplished one. But they need to draft a center and play him there for four years. I mean, even Justin Britt, who you could argue is maybe the most modestly successful center they've had in the last eight years, was a tackle and then a guard first. It was his third position in three years before he finally produced at center. They have just rolled the dice at that position. I hate to bring it up, but instead of D. Eskridge, they could have had Creed Humphrey. Oh, and, man. No. <laughs> yeah, it is. This is the first that, that I'm hearing about this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> By the way, and it's yeah, not yeah. a coincidence that the Chiefs and the Eagles were in the Super Bowl with probably two of the three best offensive lines in the league, and Creed Humphrey's a pro bowler. Uh, that, that, yeah, well, that, he was only the most athletic center prospect in the history of the combine. Easy to overlook. <laughs> and it wasn't a need position, I guess, for Seattle. Why not add another skill receiver? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, they have gotten not, I won't even say they've gotten away with center because I think they've paid a price at center. They paid a price in pass protection and Russell Wilson having to run for his life and s- some of the issues that Wilson had with the offense and him not being protected. Send from center. And the center is overlooked a lot, guys, because tackles get all the money, left tackles get all the big money, especially. But if you don't have a center who can, one, communicate, and two, discern the fronts and the blitzes that are coming, you're sunk. You're Mm -hmm. sunk before the ball's snapped. And Seattle, for about six of the last eight years, had been sunk before the ball snapped at center. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, one of the things we've talked about on this show a few times is – the difference between edge pressure and up the middle pressure. Yes, because of spacing and general speed, athleticism, most of your sacks and pressures are going to come from the edge. It's also because you're not outmanned out there. It is more often than not one-on-one. That's not true for interior defensive linemen. They're usually navigating one or two offensive linemen and then potentially a running back picking you up. But pressure up the middle is so much more difficult 
for a quarterback to process and avoid than pressure around the end. You can feel pressure off the edge most of the time and move and still go through your progressions. When that's right in your face and it's coming right at your knees, right up the middle, it just blows plays up. And you're forced to then try and get away to the outside where the best pass rushers are typically waiting. So, uh, yeah, shoring up the middle to me is honestly like the middle offensive line. That That's the number one need, uh, in my opinion, for this team. Be very, very interesting to see if they even go as high as pick number 20 uh, to try and address that. I think they have to. You look at – there were times last year that Gabe Jackson and Austin Blythe were turnstiles. We're just standing there and rolling their arms through as – Pass rushers went right through them. And as you said, Jackson, if you get up the middle pressure, that plays dead in one and a half seconds. That's right. And and if you don't have a hot read, and chances are with inside pressure, you don't have a hot read call because you're not expecting that pressure up the middle because you don't sense blitz. You don't have an option. Uh, edge rush blitzes, you have hot read options. And wide receivers look at the and can see the edge rusher coming in and he breaks off his route of two yards and throws out. You can get away and, and at least get an incompletion out of that. Up the middle pressure, no. You're going to either get a sack, a throwaway, or an interception. There are, the chances of getting a positive play out of up the middle pressure is almost zero because you don't have any blitz or hot reads for the receivers or the quarterback on that. And time and again last year, they had up the middle pressure that ruined plays for negative or no, no yards because of up the middle pressure. That whole, that whole month, month and a half long stretch after they had the four-game win streak was all about pressure up the middle. I mean, that, that offense went from – oh my God, this could be like a top 10 offense rest of the way, remove the ceiling from our expectations to, holy shit, we cannot run the ball for two yards. Gino is having to get the ball out right away. Defensive backs are sitting on routes. Like it it changed everything. So yeah, going to be super fascinating to see how aggressively uh, they approach the interior of this offensive line uh, the remainder of this offseason. But even so, it's still been relatively quiet on the offensive side of the ball so far. And, you know, obviously the Geno extension aside, but it's the defense that has seen the most movement over the last couple of weeks. In addition to assistant defensive coordinator Sean Desai, who left for the Eagles defensive coordinator job, there's been some major churn on that side of the ball. And uh, they had some very conspicuous struggles this year. You alluded to it when talking about Geno and, and saying that he understands that this defense has to get better if his career is going to look the way that he wants it to. So let's start up front with the defensive line. We already talked about Draymond Jones uh, and the potential impact that he could have. I was a little surprised to see them bring back Jaron Reed. You mentioned him earlier. Uh, he had one excellent season. I think he had two good seasons in Seattle, one of which was excellent. Uh, he had 10 sacks up the middle. It's very rare you see a player do that. Um, friend of the show, uh, Griffin Sturgeon, has been doing a deep dive on Jaron Reed's Packers tape, and his takeaway is that it has not been pretty. What do you know about the process that went into bringing Jaron Reed back? Well, they didn't want him to go but he a couple years ago, but he just refused to restructure his deal. His cap number, they gave him a two-year contract of $23 million, I think 2020, if my math's right. And this that was purposely backloaded for that second year to be an, a renegotiated year. And when he his performance was such that he didn't feel he needed to renegotiate, he deserved to be paid that backloaded second year. And the Seahawks cap situation was such that, that, no, that that wasn't in their plan. So they asked him to restructure. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. So then they tried to trade him. And nobody wanted that contract because it was so backloaded. And that's why they ended up cutting him in acrimony. And the Chiefs pick him up. And 
so on. And they wanted to extend him at a better rate for beyond. And he would still probably be under contract on a thir- th- perhaps three-year deal and never left Seattle had he been willing to take. But it probably would have been an upfront cash uh, pay cut, but not an overall three-year pay cut for him. Neither one do it. So they've always had their eye on where he would fit, perhaps in a 3-4. And that's the unknown, right? Is that they know what he is as a 4-3 defensive tackle slash outside hybrid end pass rusher, but they don't know what he could be in the 3-4. And at the end of last season, I asked Pete Carroll about specifically run defense and said, what's going to be different about personnel? Because at times last, most times last year, they had only true two, two true defensive linemen on the field because of the way they used their outside linebackers and Wosu and Irvin as edge rushers up on the line of scrimmage. They often only had two true defensive tackles and the outside linebackers slash edge rushers were freelancing. Carroll gave Irvin and Uchen and Wosu the license to do basically whatever they wanted, to rush whatever lane they wanted to where they thought they could get to the quarterback or take inside slant routes and rundowns off script the entire season. It ended up being a career sack season for Nwosu. It was an above average production year for half a season for Irvin, so much so he may play past his 36th birthday if, if they let him skip. Remarkable. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the point is that while they were allowing them to do freelance off script, they had only two defensive linemen actually doing what defensive linemen should be doing, which is control gaps and keeping blockers off the linebackers. And when you have five blockers against two defensive linemen, that's why Cody Barton and Joe Jordan Brooks were getting blocked. And that's why they were allowing 170 yards rushing per game. Mm. You kept hearing about run fits, run fits. Yeah, that's part of it. But part of the run fit issue was they had five blockers on two guys because the two outside edge rushers were freelancing and doing their own thing and running themselves right out of plays. And that's Pete Carroll's point was we're going to change both scheme and personnel to put more defensive linemen on their defensive line. Jaron Smith is a defensive lineman. Jermont Jones is a defensive lineman. They are going to put more defensive linemen than they had last year, which uh, the 3-4 did not work, certainly against the run, and because of the, the gaps and the, the keeping offensive linemen from getting to the second level. That's going to be part of Jaron Reed's and, and Jermont Jones's job on top of getting the quarterback. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that because the guys that they've let go so far uh, – I mean, it's wild. Those are two pretty high-profile signings, but, you know, LJ Collier, the most maligned draft pick of the Carroll Schneider tenure, he's gone to the Cardinals. The most maligned draft pick, not named Malik Bell, I would probably Yeah, yeah that's, that, is, that is fair. <laughs> but one that, that played, yes, the one that Cert- actually played. Yeah, and certainly as a, as a first-round pick and, sure. you know, one of those classic, you know, <laughs> Kuyper and McShay flipping through to the fourth page of their prospect list right. to find this first rounder. But uh, in addition, you know, uh, Shelby Harris was kind of an obvious cut just because of his contract, even though I think he played pretty well last year. But Quentin Jefferson and, to me, most surprisingly, Al Woods have also been let go. Uh, now, those three players, to my knowledge, haven't signed anywhere yet. There's potential that they could come back. Uh, I think they're still undecided on Puna Ford, as far as I know. Right. But – there's now more vacancy there than there was coming out of a bad defensive line season. Yes, but again, they have five of the first 83 picks in this draft that is loaded with defensive front seven talent. Yep. And I think the four of those five picks, well, let's say three of those five are going to be defensive linemen. They may take that the That would be something. Okay. Yeah. 
they may take a center, they may take a quarterback, but I think at least three of those top five picks are going to be defensive front seven guys from linemen. But I think Al Woods was the surprise to me. He wanted to come back. I asked him specifically after the day after the 49ers game and the locker cleanout day, hey, you expect to be back? And he looked at me like I was crazy. Like, yeah, I'm still under contract for another year. Why wouldn't I be back? I don't want to go out like this. Well, I knew that the money and the age would at least give the Seahawks the thought of perhaps releasing him, and that's what they did. And it, it really surprised me that he was – he's a captain. He was a locker room guy. Uh, he was a lunch pail dude. He was a, he's a rancher. He talked about his kids and his cows and a real down-home folksy <laughs> guy in the locker room that the players really liked. Uh, and he wasn't so old that he was a father figure, but a really relatable guy in that locker room. Well, Andre Diggs certainly was uh, surprised by it. I saw he he tweeted he didn't name the move, but in the immediate aftermath of that cut, he said something like, "What are we doing?" <laughs> right. Quandre Diggs, by the way, doesn't mind saying anything. No, <laughs> I, no I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's already got Bobby Wagner re-signed and done. Right. It's up yeah, to totally, him. <laughs> totally. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they at least offer Al Woods a reduced deal to come back this year and. If he doesn't have another offer from somewhere else, he may end up taking that at a much more cap-friendly number than he would have had otherwise. I hope so, man. I I hope so. I I mean, I I tend to trust the guys in the building. They're seeing this stuff every day. But it just makes too much sense to have a guy like him, especially someone that I can just swallow up blockers. Right. I mean, that guy puts his – feet in the dirt and they're not going anywhere you know he's he's not going to make a ton of plays in the backfield but he's not going to be the reason that you get beat in the run game either and that ain't more of those guys like i said to keep the offensive linemen off the linebackers but part of this massive overhaul guys is going to be the draft and yeah. and they're not spending a ton more money in free agency on defense because they know the, the top picks they have and the and the quality of the front seven guys that are in this draft do you think there's a chance that puna ford is with this team next year I would have thought it would have happened already. Uh, He's an interesting case because Carroll loves, you guys know, he loves the intangibles. He loves, he's a Seahawk guy. And what he means by that is someone who was undrafted, overlooked, chip on the shoulder. That's, that was Puna Ford, right? He was a big 12 defensive player of the year at Texas, yet he didn't even get drafted because people saw he's under six foot, so he can't play in the NFL. And he, motor, sideline to sideline, I've covered this league for a couple of days and I've rarely seen a nose tackle make tackles on screen passes at the sideline. Right. And Punas Ford did that constantly. And heaven knows the Seahawks needed someone to make tackles on screen plays. And it was often Puna Ford. <laughs> and you look down and go, what is he doing out there? Uh-huh. And, then I, and after the game, I'd go back and look at just specifically watch Puna Ford on outside plays. And he'd be there before outside linebackers and safeties got there. You know, it's crazy. He the the word I always thought of watching Puna Ford play is slippery. You couldn't hold a block on that guy. You could get your hands on him and he wasn't gonna move you, but you he was tough to keep your hands on. Strong as an ox, obviously, to play in the league at his size, but at his stature, he had the leverage. He did. The, the actual height worked to his advantage inside yep. there because of how low he was. Yeah, I, I would have thought they would have brought him back already. Of course, they gave him what a larger deal than most undrafted guys get the fifth, sixth year in the league that he got a couple of years ago. So uh, perhaps the precedent was set that they didn't want to go back down that road at that cost. He's another one that it, this time of year, after you get through the first wave of free agency and guys don't sign, Seattle's MO in the past has been, okay, you shopped. 
you didn't get what you liked. How about you come back for this? Or at least keep this number in mind. If you don't get anything else you like, no, we'll take you at this number. Yeah. And that's sometimes what happens in May or April or May or even June. Guys have shopped for a while and don't see it coming, so that they do come back and take what the Seahawks were offering to begin with. Yeah, it's such a it's gotta be such an uncomfortable time to be a free agent after those first couple waves of signings because now teams are starting to say, All right, let's look at our draft board and let's see how many of these spots we can fill on cheap rookie deals with young players before we commit to someone who's already been in the league for a while and whose team said no for whatever reason on, on bringing them back. One last thought on, on Puna, just because he, he's a fan favorite. He seemed to be a, a locker room favorite, but he reminded me of the defensive version of Darren Sproles and mm-hmm. Darren Sproles, this tiny little running back. And usually when you see those guys make it to the league, they're scat back, they're satellite backs. Darren Sproles got between the tackles and was a really effective up the middle rusher because he knew how to use his diminutive frame to basically stay below the sight line behind his offensive lineman. And, and I always felt that way with Puna Ford, like to your point, he used his height to his advantage because low man wins, right? He right. was exactly. always the low man. So uh, I, I hope he's back, but uh, wherever he lands, as long as it's not in San Francisco, I'm going to be uh, rooting for him for sure. That's all San Francisco needs is another productive yeah. defensive player. <laughs> I'm sorry for even putting that in the universe. I'm, I dig it back. I dig it back. <laughs> before we before we move on quickly, yeah, yeah. Uh, just a heads up, breaking news on Cigar Thoughts, per Field Yates, the Browns are signing Marquise Goodwin to a one-year deal. Oh, good for him. Good for him. That's great. Uh, I, ho- I hope he makes it. They've, they've loaded up that receiver room. Man, that's that's going to be a tough team to make with uh, Amari Cooper, Donovan Peoples-Jones. They just traded for Elijah Moore. They drafted David Bell pretty high last year. Drafted Anthony Schwartz pretty high. So, yeah, Godspeed, man. Well, he's uh, got it. Godspeed is that's actually probably so. – Godspeed <laughs> is what he's got. He has Godspeed. Uh, all right, all right. Thank you for that, Mike. Uh, all right, so – with the linebackers, obviously, that this was a highly criticized position group last year. And I'm really glad you brought up what you did, Greg, because it's easy to look at the way Jordan Brooks and Cody Barton specifically played last year and say, look at all these times that they got beat. Look at all these big runs that they gave up. But they were dealing with 300-pound offensive guards for yards past the line of scrimmage. Right. And, it, you know, no defense is going to do that on purpose. So... Um, you know, if they do shore that up and if, if Brooks comes back healthy, uh, I, I think we'll see a lot better from him this next year. But they let Cody Barton go. The commander signed him. Tanner Muse, Ben Burkiven, they're not on the team currently. But they brought in Devin Bush from the Steelers. And for those not familiar, Devin Bush out of Michigan was, I think, the top linebacker, top off-ball linebacker in that class. Uh, he was picked 10th overall. And was looking good until he blew his knee out and just hasn't been that since. Now, my understanding is this is a one-year deal, kind of a prove it. It seems to me like the right type of gamble for this team to make. What are your thoughts on Devin Bush? Well, yeah, Bush, he's the first Steeler rookie defender to have 100 tackles in a season. And the Steelers have a pretty illustrious history at that position and on defense. And then the second season is when he injured his knee and reconstructive surgery, and he really hadn't been the same since, both in his reps and his performance. He started to fall into a rotation in, the, in the, this past season in Mike Tomlin's defensive scheme. So that's why the Steelers didn't offer him beyond his rookie contract. 
this time last year, they didn't offer him a fifth year option that they could have. As right. Last year, I was surprised by that. Right. And it was because of the injury that changed that the Steelers mind changed him. The Seahawks, you, you hit it a one year deal at low risk. They're banking on him being the rookie version and, and the Michigan version of Devin Bush. And if he is, then then they've hit and they could re-sign him and that he could be a guy for the next couple of years at that position. He has a job to lose inside linebacker, one of two spots. Jordan Brooks, I don't think is going to be able to come back until maybe mid-season at best. Yeah. I mean, we're talking October into November. That injury Man. happened on January 1st. And we know that ACLs and surgeries take nine, usually nine to 12 months. Well, the you thing know, with that, a lot of times you can't get the surgery right, right away. No. A lot of times you got to wait weeks for the swelling to go down for them to even get in there. And that's what happened with Brooks. He didn't have the surgery right after. It took weeks. And Carol mentioned at the combine a nine-month window perhaps and maybe a best-case six-month window of possibly him getting on the field. Even six months is training camp. And he w- he's a prime candidate to start training camp on the physically unable to perform list, which, of course, puts him in track to start the season that way and they wouldn't miss the first six games. They can't count on him at yeah. least till the middle of the season. So they've got to have two new inside linebackers. That's why I was told at the Combine by more than one person who would know that Bobby Wagner, the interest in him is legit and that the Seahawks are waiting to see what the market will be for Wagner. And they are going to obviously let Wagner and his stature go shop and see what deals he can get. But that they've told him, here's what we can afford, a one-year deal, not a lot of money, incentive-based, certainly less than you're used to making, probably about half of the $10 million plus that he earned mm-hmm. last year with the Rams. So he now is going to go see, would the Bills, would, would Dallas, would New England offer him more than 5 or $6 million for one year? And if they do, then he would have a choice to make. After he's done shopping, then he will come back to Seattle and tell him what he got. That's what I've been told the agreement is. You mentioned the draft and the dynamics of free agency. The reason free agency slows after the first wave or two, and right now until the draft next uh, in April, is exactly what you said, Jackson. They want to see, can we get the same type of player and perhaps talent and production on a rookie deal instead of a free agent deal? And teams always want to do that. And so they teams are really loath to invest in a Bobby Wagner type seven, eight million, ten million dollar a year guy when you have draft three weeks away to see if you can get the same possible type of talent on a four year rookie contract at minimum salary. So that the Bobby Wagner situation may not happen till after the draft to see what rosters are set and who gets what defenders coming in rookie deals compared to what they could sign Bobby Wagner for. I still think it's a Better than 50-50 chance the Seahawks sign, re-sign Wagner coming back for this year. That's cool. And that he probably, if he does sign, he would have an inside linebacker job to start the season because of the Jordan Brooks situation. You know, there have been so many players to love over the last 10 years in Seattle. Uh, just both from a performance, but also a personality standpoint. And I have had many, many players that I'm just like, man, I feel so blessed to have watched this guy be a Seahawk, I mean, Richard Sherman and Marshawn Lynch and Cam Chancellor's always been my number one. Now DK Metcalf. I mean, these are really, really cool players. Russell Wilson. I mean, you know, forget the Shorten fraud of the last year, year and a half. Absolute blessing to this franchise for a decade. Now, when I look back at everything 
that has happened with the Seahawks since Pete Carroll and John Schneider showed up. To me, Mr. Seahawk is Bobby Wagner. He just, he was the guy. He was always the guy in that locker, in, in an impossible locker room to be an alpha in. He was that, he was that steadying force. And I'll never forget seeing an interview with Metcalf during, uh, I guess, two years ago, where he's talking about Bobby kind of having an idea, might not be back, and talking to him, to DK, about how to be a leader and and how to essentially lead a locker room. And the thought of him coming back would just be so awesome, you know, and, and I can't get over the dichotomy between how Pete Carroll received Russell Wilson on the field versus how he received Bobby Wagner on the field before and after the games. Like it, it really did seem like there was a ton of love and respect, and it seems like it would be a warm welcome with him coming back. It would. And again, Bobby Wagner never came to Pete Carroll and said, I don't want to be here anymore. I think I can maximize my legacy somewhere else, which is what right. it ended up being with Russell Wilson. And I think in the back of Pete Carroll's mind, when they released Wagner, even as ugly as that was, and not him not knowing firsthand from the team and finding yeah. out that, was, yeah. that was hammed up. Even then, I think Pete Carroll had in the back of his mind the possibility of Wagner coming back. That Rams deal was very short term, and it's everyone said five years, and no, it was a one year deal and a play by year to year after that. And Carroll, he did, the interesting fact here of the Wagner, the player in this scheme, is again the unknown is the four three versus the three four. Wagner was the lone inside linebacker in that four three who had basically numbers to numbers responsibility. Yep. I mean, he he was out in the flats. He was sometimes covering tight ends. He was the lone run stopper with four defensive linemen in front of him, keeping guys off of him. Can he do that? What, what, what kind of what would he look like in a three four? And part of Pete Carroll's task this coming year, guys, is to make his three four look a little more like four three up front, meaning in run stopping, keeping offensive linemen off the linebackers. And it's hard to do when there's one fewer. Just the math of it is harder to do when there's one fewer defensive linemen. But you're going to see less of. I think in Chenanuosu type of pass rushing on rundowns than you saw last year. And you're going to see more of perhaps Boye Mafe and whoever else they draft to be more stout run stopping edge setting defensive linemen to keep them off the linebackers. And if they can succeed in getting that change from last year, then Bobby Wagner could be a fit in this defense. But if you're going to have 300 pound guards, as you put it, Jackson, getting on linebackers, Bobby Wagner doesn't want any part of that. He, he's not at his age at 33. He's going to sign up for that. So he's going to want a defense and scheme that's going to get him free to make 150 plus tackles so he can get a new contract after this coming year. So that's where Wagner, on his part of it, has to decide can Carroll's scheme in this new 3 4 be better at keeping better in 2023 than it was last year at keeping defensive tackles and or keeping uh, offensive tackles and guards off linebackers? Yeah, yeah, it'll be super interesting. I, I think that's the storyline that I'm cheering for the most. I'm I'm sure that is uh, a sentiment shared by many Seahawks fans. I do want to get to the secondary because I think secondary is extremely interesting for this team. But before we do, just a couple other thoughts on on Bobby Wagner because he deserves it. One of them being seeing how much of a difference maker he was in the two games against the Rams. Like those were two games up there with the best games of his career in terms of impact making plays, but they were the type of plays. And I know this has to do with superior uh, defensive talent around him in LA in a different scheme, but he wasn't making the splash plays in Seattle his last few years. And I think the reason for that is 
it's it's easy to say, oh, he's lost a step, he's older, and that may be true. I think that his, you know, when you've got the Legion of Boom behind you and you've got Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett in front of you, uh, you can you can tack a little bit more. But his last few years in Seattle, <laughs> I always pictured him as like one of those professional dog walkers that has like 10 dogs yeah. on 10 different leashes. Yeah. And that's who I felt Bobby Wagner was. Like he had to keep the other 10 guys where they're supposed to be in addition to making sure he doesn't get hit by a car crossing the street. So, uh, you know, I, I do think that that speaks a lot to why you saw fewer sacks and fewer turnovers from him uh, in the last few years. But let's uh, let's step back a little bit further to the secondary because this is this is a fascinating group. Obviously, when you draft two good corners and potentially one exceptional corner, uh, you you get the same kind of benefit on defense that you get by getting two good tackles on offense. Those are high paid perimeter positions that you now have cheap and young and exciting and all of that stuff. Uh, that's awesome. Safety is super fascinating to me because you've got the highest paid safety room in the NFL by a lot with Quandry Diggs and Jamal Adams both making top-of-the-market money, they brought in Julian Love from the Giants. And my my brother-in-law, Jesse, uh, who is about to have a, a son, what up, Alvin, uh, is a huge Giants fan, and he was distraught over Julian Love leaving. And I started digging into him. He is a very interesting player, kind of like a switchblade-type safety. Right. Uh, talk to me about Julian Love and his potential fit here. Well, first of all, he was a captain for the Giants last year. So this is no small loss for New York's defense. But then again, they could have made an effort to resign him before he let him go in free agency. He's young, so what is he, 24? Yeah, 24, 25 years old. And he's just ending his rookie contract. The Giants decided not to let it go, to re-up it. He has played as an over-the-top deep safety. He's played as an in-the-box strong safety type. He's played as a nickel. So he's been a cover guy, a run stopper, and a slot defender. And that is where the attraction for Seattle is. Here's what they want to do at safety. You're, you are exactly right, Jackson. They had to hit on the corners, rookies and low salaries. The Tariq Woolen, the, the stroke that that became, has set them up. Because they were, they were in trouble if Woolen wasn't hitting a corner or one of those corners Kobe Bryant or Woolen wasn't hitting because of their salary structure at safety. But when, if Jamal, and this is a big if, because that quad, torn quadriceps is a tricky thing. And it's there's no sure thing injury. that he is going to come back anywhere near what he was. But if he does come back anywhere near what he does, he's going to be the 2020 version at the line of scrimmage as a hybrid yes. linebacker. And that means that Jordan, that Love could be a true back in the defense safety. They'll have three safeties on. They were going to do this last year until the first half of the first game when Adams got hurt. They're going to have three safeties on the field a lot. Cool. And whether that's Ryan Neal or Love is, is the competition that's going to happen in the summer. And they're going to have Jamal Adams at the line of scrimmage as a pass rusher slash hybrid linebacker to help and run support with still retaining two safeties back in the back, whether it's Love or Neal. And then Quandre Diggs as the traffic cop deep middle. But that is the reason for the love signing, to free up Jamal Adams to play at the line of scrimmage. Now, Ryan Neal, I thought he was going to get a multi-year deal. He yeah. still may get it because that tender is uh, more buying time than anything else. Talk talk about that tender for those of us who don't speak salary cap as fluently as we would like. 
Well, they have three levels of a tender offer. You can give a restricted free agent. There's an early round, to basically an early round, second or third round pick, a later round, sixth or seventh round pick, meaning that would be the compensation if he signs elsewhere. Or the bottom level of a tender is the right of first refusal. And that's it. You don't get draft pick compensation. You just get the right to match any offer that that restricted free agent may get elsewhere. And so the Seahawks giving him the right of first refusal means that that's the least of the three levels in salary. $2.6 million is right of first refusal. I think for this year, it was four plus million for the late round, and it was closer to six million for the, my numbers may be off. It, it changes every year. It goes up with inflation in the NFL. But roughly, that's the higher the level you get, the higher draft compensation you get for a guy that would sign elsewhere, then the higher salary that that tender comes with. So they took the lowest right of, refers- of, right of, ref- right of refusal um, tender, so that was the lowest cost at $2.6 million. The effectiveness of what that did is it kept Ryan Neal off the free agent market. And then now the agreement that Seahawks have is, okay, Neal, if you go get a deal somewhere else that's better than $2.6 million for this year, let us know. And we will work on trying to get you perhaps a multi-year deal at a better cap number for us over a two or three year period. So they bought the Seahawks time to keep him from signing elsewhere as an unrestricted free agent had they not tendered him at all. So they give him the low round tender and think they can have him for at least 2.6 million, if not two or three year contracts. Okay, okay, that's that's helpful. So uh, switching back to Julian Love, does the signing say anything about how the team feels about Jamal Adams and his future in Seattle? Well, the, the salaries, this, the, the new contract is such that they would actually take a financial bath cutting them this year. And next year is the time that they could save $17 million in cap space in 2024 if they wanted to release Adams after that or the next year at this time. I, so I don't see it happening this year. They want to see what Jamal Adams looks like in a 3-4 in, as a in-the-box hybrid linebacker pass rusher. That's what the plan was last year, and that's going to be the plan this year. Of course, now the, the big variable is the injury. Can he come back for it? But the plan, to answer your question, is for him to not be a second of two high safeties like he was in 2021, Good. which was a complete disaster, and they were giving up more boatloads of passing yards. They want him to be more than nine-and-a-half sack version. Now, the, the problem in 2020 is they didn't have a second safety they could trust in pass coverage uh, yet – Brian Neal had yet not yet proven himself, and so they didn't have enough trust to play a single high safety coverage. Can they play single high and bring Jamal Adams down on the box? Well, maybe they don't have to now that they have love, and that was part of the love signing that you could have now a second safety in coverage and basically have a three safety defense. Got it. So it's more of a supportive signing than a replacement signing, to in me, your opinion, for, the, for this year. Correct. For this year. And now we'll, next year, if he doesn't prove Adams to be back health-wise near the player he was and he's not worth $70 million because of performance and health, then they have a $17 million cap savings possibly here this time next year on him. Now, we're a long way to that because they really do want to see – They, if you listen to the defensive coaches, they will tell you that part of the defense's problems last year was not having Jamal Adams in the role they envisioned. They spent the whole offseason designing a defense of three safeties with Adams as a pass rusher and they never got to use it for more than a quarter and a half. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, it, it really is such a, a missed opportunity as a fan, I think, to see how, uh, you know, these new defensive coaches were going to use uh, a player like Jamal Adams. Be, and, and when they were do, conducting their interviews for their defensive coaching, 
what I was hearing is that, you know, a huge part of that was how are you going to use this guy? He is, he is such a unique piece. He's so good at the things that he's good at and, and his weaknesses are every bit as apparent as his strengths are. So that'll be really fascinating to watch just to kind of round out uh, where we're at with the secondary. Uh, I think they're also tentatively bringing Michael Jackson back, but uh, out for now, at least. Got Artie Burns. I was I was bummed to never really see what what he could do because he was great in the slot in Chicago. Uh, Jonathan Abrams, who they took a flyer on, former first round pick by the Raiders. Justin Coleman, Josh Jones. You see any of those guys being a part of the future in Seattle? Not with the way Mike Jackson and Tariq Woolen emerge, and they still have Kobe Bryant, who we're barely talking about, who was great. I thought as a my slot. my connect in in Indy was saying that they think Kobe Bryant could be a special slot corner. Yeah, they they really do. That's why Justin Coleman's gone. They re-signed Coleman last year this time, thinking he was going to be there. Mm-hmm. He was the best slot corner they'd had in a decade, and then Kobe Bryant shows up, and Justin Coleman's <laughs> a nobody. Yeah. Uh, that's how good Bryant was last year. Uh, Josh Jones had a chance to be Ryan Neal, and he just couldn't tackle anybody. Right. And after, after Adams got hurt, they gave him the chance, and he just could not tackle anybody in the open field. And I thought Jonathan Abrams uh, made more mistakes than plays in the four games that he had a chance to do at the end of last season, which is why he let, got let go. So the love signing, uh, bringing Ryan Neal back, and then having those basically three rookies. Mike Jackson, that was the first time he'd ever started in the NFL, even though he's a fourth-year veteran. Uh, they they hit it like to make to circle back to your point at the top of the safeties here, Jackson. They hit it at every position besides safety because they had to mm-hmm. because of the salary structure. And now they have young, inexpensive talent to augment and, and supplement the, the two highest paid safeties in the game. So all of that brings us to the draft. We've we've touched on it a little bit as we've gone through. But if we take a more holistic version of Seattle's draft, you mentioned the firepower that they have. Two first-round picks, two second-round picks, the 83rd pick. I mean, top 85 players, you're expecting to be difference makers, right? You get to day three, and you're hoping. You're hoping that that someone pops and earns a spot or, or becomes great, but you're not counting on it, generally speaking. Most teams, they've got two or three shots in the first two days. Seattle's got five. So... You know, they, they can really deploy some firepower here to try and fill some of these gaps. You've given us a little bit of insight in, in how you think they're going to go. Uh, one thing that you mentioned that I want to touch on is the belief that quarterback is still on the table. And we, we talked about the, the big PR tour they're doing with the top quarterbacks. How realistic is it that if one of those top four guys is there at five, that they swing for it? I think it really comes down to the top three, Jackson. I think they think that Anthony Richardson would be the guy if he's still at five that they would take. Yeah, yeah. speaking my language, baby. They, they loved him, and so did the rest of the world at the Combine. He was the star of the Combine. He was what every player, every team was talking about. If you talk about one player that was at the Combine, people talked about most, it was Anthony Richardson from every team. I don't think he's going to be there. I think someone, if if he's not taken in the first three – Let's put it this way. It's going to be Stroud now that Carolina has moved up to number one. It's going to be Stroud and or Bryce Young at one. The other that wasn't picked at one at two. And then at three, it's probably going to be, or the Colts, if they were willing to wait, it's probably going to be Richardson. And so I think three of the first four picks, if not the first three picks, are going to be quarterbacks. Stroud and Young and Richardson. So that takes the Seahawks out of the quarterback picture because I don't think they love Love Will Levis enough. I've heard the same. So 
but they want the league to think they do because then they could get perhaps a team to come up like Tennessee, for instance, or Washington, or somebody who needs a quarterback who might say, well, we better go up to five with Seattle and take this Will Levis guy because the Seahawks might take him. The Seahawks aren't taking him. The Seahawks aren't trading up to take a quarterback. They're trying to create the impression that they would take a quarterback so that they can field all possible trade offers. Guys, through all this Carolina trading up and the emergence of Richardson, Will Anderson to Seattle has become more and more of a possibility. I know. <laughs> he might be it, the best. He might be the best player in this draft. Correct. If not, it's Jalen Carter, who also could be theirs. And and we know Pete Carroll doesn't mind taking projects and off-field concerns and thinks he can mold them into doing whatever he wants them to do for Seattle. But they may have their pick of Will Anderson or Jalen Carter at number five. And Will Anderson, I don't think they could pass him up at five. I think that's no. who they would take. I think you turn off your phone and sprint to the podium if he's there at five. <laughs> of course, they don't do that. They always take to the last second because they want every possible trade offer. Of but, course, of course. But I think that's the scenario they're trying to build. The impression that they would take a quarterback at five to take any and all trade offers. But at the end of the day, the teams that want quarterbacks will have traded up and already taken them by the time Seattle picks at five. And the best guy sitting there may be Will Anderson, and that's who I think they're going to end up taking. Yeah, that, that would be extremely exciting. You know, I, I tweeted out yesterday, we've reached the point where I I can almost not imagine a decision they make at five that I'm not thrilled about. <laughs> I think I think five is the last real linchpin pick in, in that top 10. You've got the leverage. If you do want to take your shot on quarterback of the future, this is going to be the best chance you have to do it uh, through the draft for the foreseeable future. Um Seahawks just aren't going to draft in the top five <laughs> again, realistically speaking. And my thought with Anthony Richardson, just to keep it with QBs for a second. Yes, I, I do think he has probably the lowest floor. He just might not be an NFL quality passer, but he's so young. He's so good. He is so I mean, we've gotten used to these hyper athletic quarterbacks coming into the NFL. We have not seen Anthony Richardson yet. He he broke the combine. Right. And to me. I see someone with the potential, you know, we talk about Geno Smith hitting his top 1% outcome last year and being a top eight quarterback in the NFL is massively valuable, huge hit. Anthony Richardson's top 1% outcome is being the LeBron James of football. It is changing the way quarterback is played. And to me, especially if you've already got your guy there for another year or two, I, I think the juice is worth the squeeze on that one. The thing is, he may not be. That, that, that's the dice roll there, is that because of only 13 college games, you are projecting far Absolutely. more. And so that, and that's, that's, the, that's the situation. If Huge opportunity to, cost, right? Huge exactly. opportunity cost. Absolutely. And to your point, this, is only, this will be, if they hold the pick at five and don't trade it, this will only be the second time in 27 years, guys, that they've had a pick anywhere near this high. And they, so they have to at least think about quarterback because of your point, they don't expect to be here again for another generation. And so do you, without having to trade up draft capital to get here, do you take a quarterback for the future with a quarterback currently re-signed on a contract that is very, very much shorter term than longer term? This isn't a five-year deal for Geno Smith. And that does set him up to take a quarterback. The way the league is going to break it down, though, again, and I think Will Levis will be the only top quarterback available at five. And no way, I mean, no way. Are they going to take Will Levis at five? Uh-uh. 
but they want the rest of the league to think they are again, so they could possibly get trading up and quarterback draft pick. They could, in that situation, if someone wanted to trade up for Levis, trade down a couple spots and still get Will Anderson or Jalen Carter and pick up another second or third round, or possibly even first round pick for him. But it, it is, I, I totally get the thinking that Seattle is at least considering a quarterback and the fact that they are considering him is because of how rare this opportunity is. But guys, this defense is so I know, bad. I know. So bad. It's so funny because I spent like the last eight months saying just hammer defensive line in the well, draft. With, with and now here we are, it's like, oh, oh, you're going <laughs> to you're gonna dangle this guy in front of me? Right. <laughs> now, if Richardson's available at five, I think they draft him. But I don't think he's going to be there, and that's why I think they're going to end up with Will Anderson. Oh, man. And, and listen – if I had to rank potential outcomes at the number five pick, Will Anderson is at the top for me. That that would make me the happiest. But beyond that, you've got the option. If you're comfortable with Jalen Carter in the legal situation and you feel like this is not somebody you're going to have to babysit, he might be the best player in this draft, like you said. You've also got the option of trading back and picking up a first next year and maybe another pick this year and to get a guy a like Greasy or Miles Murphy or yeah. Exactly. Tyree Wilson, Tyree yeah. Wilson Christian Gonzalez. I mean, there's still going to be some really remarkable potential difference makers available at seven, eight, nine, and 10 in this draft. And from a personal standpoint, how much fun was it rooting against a team last year for their <laughs> draft pick? I mean, forget the Russell Wilson stuff, just rooting for losses from another team. And if it's, if it's the Commanders or if it's the Raiders or the Falcons that move up, take that pick, there's a chance that pick's in the top 10 again next year. And if you want right. to make your move at quarterback, then you do have two first-rounders. Again, you could package up for a, a Caleb Williams or a Drake May or someone like that. So it's just like – unless they just go totally off the board again uh, – and they've I, never done that, so that's no, not possible. No, no, there's yeah, there's there's no there's no chance that they're going to take Lucas Wynn Ness there or anything. Um, but but uh, I, I want to step back. You know, most of the conversation about Seahawks draft, of course, revolves around number five. But at number twenty, they're going to have some really cool options there too. Um, you know, one player that I've fallen in love with, I've been in love with for two, three years now, and I'm not alone in this, is Jackson Smith and Jigba. I think wide receiver is a bigger need than we want to admit. Um, we saw what happened to this offense when Tyler Lockett was out. Um, they just became too easy to defend. Tyler Lockett is getting up there. I think he is still an elite separator. Um, Jackson Smith and Jigba is that to a T. He's he's the best separator I've seen come out of college football in a while. And um, you know, and he he dominated Ohio State even with two first rounders uh, in that same room with him. And another probably the first receiver off the board and Marvin Harrison Jr. next year all in that room he was putting up the best stats so uh he's interesting to me at 20 if you were sitting there and you've got an option to take JSN or John Michael Schmidt who's the center that you alluded to or someone like Florida guard Osiris uh Smith I think is his name uh Osiris Torrance is there a let's just say those three guys are there is there one of those that you're like Take this guy. Don't trade back. Don't mess around. Get this guy. Well, Smith and Jigba was another talk of the combine, and his stock has gone up so much that perhaps the perception that other teams might draft him may take somebody into the top 15 for him. And you look at teams with multiple first-round picks, it's possibly like Seattle that might take him, but I don't know if he's going to be there at 20. I would take the center. Again, I whether it's the center from Minnesota or the, there's a center from Iowa, there's, there are 
they need a center that works for more than a year, like I said. Mm-hmm. It, now, center at first round is not quite norm in the NFL, and it's not Seattle's MO. I would go line of scrimmage, defensive tackle, center, interior, offensive line with that second first pick, just because okay. of how much of a need that is and how much how poor they've been there. But whether it's in the second round, third round, they got a fixed center. And that's why I think they're going to draft one relatively highly. And I, I personally would take the number 20. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the permutations for round two and three are too multitudinous for us to break down all those potential options. It's a good but word, by the way. Sticking with, thank you. It's on my word of the day calendar. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, if you had to pick, you're, you're putting your ass on the line. I'm going to nail the first two picks in this draft. Who are Seattle taking? Will Anderson and the and the center you mentioned from John Michael Schmidt. I think there would be a lot of happy Seahawks fans if that's how the first round goes. I I, I would be thrilled with that personally. It rarely goes as you think, as we know. So <laughs> yeah, I, I don't at all. I would not be surprised if they trade down, especially if they're still going to draft a defensive player. They won't trade down far because of where they are and and how rare this opportunity is. But perhaps Las Vegas at seven or. Uh, Tennessee, I think, is at 12 or 13. But they're not. if they do trade down, it won't be one of these 20s and 30s like they've been for so many right. years. That right. They want to take advantage of this perch they're at. I love that. I love that. All right, Greg, this has been a very illuminating conversation. Uh, like I told you before we were on the air, Mike and I have been excited about getting you on the show. We thought this would be the perfect time to get your insight. So thank you for validating that decision today. Appreciate it. You guys are great. Like I said, appreciate and respect the work you guys do. So... The only, my only apology is I didn't have a cigar to puff on while we were talking. <laughs> we'll, we'll remedy that next time. <laughs> I got you covered, brother. <laughs> I'll have you puffing right along with me. My wife know. might not like that here in yeah, our, right. our empty nest house. <laughs> yeah. Our empty nest house, and she has certain ways now that the kids are gone. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Well, we, we can get you straightened out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that, that's awesome, man. Well, listen, uh, you know, hearing that from you means a lot. We, we have the utmost respect for you and the work that you do. A lot of the folks who are listening are aware of that excellent work. And for those who aren't, where can they get more of you? Ah, well, uh, at thenewstribune.com. Thenewstribune.com is our website, sports, and at Seattle on Twitter. I I use Twitter mainly to link my stories as a conduit into the stories, but also might put a picture of my dog or yeah yeah don't don't let greg sell his twitter account short man he he needs to be on your short list as a seahawks fan if you're on the bird as for us you can find mike and i on social media as well i'm on twitter at at jackson bevins that's j-a-c-s-o-n remember that no k is okay when spelling my name mike is on twitter at at mike barwin and the show itself is at cigar thoughts you can also find us on instagram at cigar thoughts nfl and on facebook at seahawks cigar thoughts of course you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple podcasts, audible odyssey anywhere, and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating, leave us a quick review. Thank you to all of y'all for your continued support of this show. We know you've only got so much time in your life to listen and for us to make the cut means the world. Uh, it really is an honor to be a part of that for y'all. Please know that by sharing the show on social media and with your friends, you give us the juice to keep making it happen. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. 